Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetInst.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. I increasingly feel that modern life is becoming intolerable for everyone, whether they're neurodivergent or not. I think we've noticed it earlier. I think, you know, we've reached our point of unbearable discomfort earlier along the line. But I, I just begin to think that the way we're living is gen- generally hostile to our brains and our, our like neurology. We are, all of us, completely overwhelmed all the time. And, you know, like the idea that some people had a good pandemic, well, that's because the world called a truce on some of us and we didn't realise we needed it until that moment. I mean, I don't know what it's going to take for us to all pull the brake on this because it's not good. It's not good for us. So says Catherine May the New York Times bestselling author of Wintering, the book that spoke to so many of our souls when it came out a month before the pandemic. Catherine anticipated what all of us felt, which is that our way of living was not supportable and that we needed retreat and rest. Catherine is a prophet for a number of reasons, not only because she's a stunningly beautiful writer and astute observer of the world, but also because she's wired a little bit differently. Before she wrote Wintering, Catherine wrote another book, a memoir called The Electricity of Every Living Thing about attempting to walk the 630-mile southwest coast path in Britain before turning 40. But it's not a book about a heroic feat. It's actually about grappling with her late-in-life diagnosis as being on the autism spectrum disorder. Catherine always knew she was different, but she never knew exactly how or why, only that she found many parts of life overwhelming and chaotic. The book, which is stunning, explores the way so many of us feel like we're passing, picking up behaviors from other people in order to be accepted or to fit in. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I was so happy, I don't know, a few weeks ago or a month ago when I went into my favorite bookstore diesel where I which I haunt like a ghost (laughs) I'm there all the time and I saw the electricity of every living thing because when I first read wintering I was like 
what's more, what's more, and it was only available in the UK, right? <laughs> That's right. But it predates yeah, yeah. wintering, not by a tremendous amount of time. But now you're the years, wintering yeah. person. I am. Yes. I know. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so you've been. It's ahead. been really. I've been so glad that it's come out in the US this year because I. I just. It's one of those books. It's maybe not for everybody, but it helps. You know, like it helps a lot of people to understand themselves and who they are and what they need, and it helps other people to understand the people in their lives who are maybe like me. So yeah, I'm always thrilled when people can get their hands on it. Yeah, no, I would argue with you that I actually think it is. I think it is a book for everyone, including I mean, I think it's a book for anyone too who feels just going back to what we were talking about, who feels highly sensitive or attenuated to the world, because Mm -hmm. the way that you describe and not to Catherine's, but the way that you describe yourself, you know, and are situated on this, this autism spectrum disorder Mm, but but the mm. way that you talk about your life coping right or emulating pulling strings from various people and how to behave in the world yeah speaks to you know the way I think so many of us are are conditioned right like you are pulling little pockets of behavior from other people yeah I mean I had to do that really deliberately like through my childhood and my teens in order to like pass as normal and you know we do talk about passing in our community and we talk about camouflaging and masking like all of those different behaviors that let us wear a more socially acceptable facade I suppose but of course you know like I don't know if you've read your Irving Goffman but the great sociologist Irving Goffman wrote about this I don't know like in the 50s and 60s and talked about the dramaturgical metaphor and he felt that all human beings did this they had like an outward facing self and a backstage self and that actually very few people ever get to see your true backstage self if if anyone does at all and so it's an extension of of normal life in lots of ways but of course for us it's like really extreme and it's also very damaging I mean like you know Goffman didn't think that that masking was damaging he thought that was just a part of of how we behave but actually when you when you talk to autistic people the kind of levels of exhaustion that we endure and the fragmenting of the self that comes from if we can manage it like trying to act normal massive scare quotes there it's (laughs) yeah yeah normal is a really important and interesting word in my life definitely yeah there are so many beautiful I'm looking at my notes from the book and so many, I mean, you are such a stunning writer. It is intimidating. And I loved actually (laughs) hearing about the way that you absorb words and and Mm. the way that your mind works and essentially your capacity to to be a walking dictionary was so beautiful. But I thought, you know, the way that you write about wanting to be normal, but not even normal. I love this part you wrote. But I was a master by then of the surface appearance. I had watched carefully the way that other people behaved and mimicked it precisely. I had all the social airs and graces, the encouraging smiles and the kind inquiries, and I could chase the lineage of each of them back to the person I stole them from. Mm. So beautiful and exhausting. You know, I can't imagine your mind. <laughs> yeah, it it's busy, you know, it's cluttered and I and that kind of sense of everything being present all at once is I think one of the reasons why autistic people get overwhelmed, you know, like if someone has touched me in the last day and I wasn't expecting it, I'll be feeling that still for like the next 12 hours. And Mm. I will have everything on my to-do list at the front of my head and everything I've said, like replaying constantly and everything everybody else has said and stuff from a few years ago and whatever else is going on. And actually, one of the things that my diagnosis has let me do is is really consciously empty my head and reduce the stimulus and I've become I mean I'm sure it's really annoying to the outside but as a survival mechanism now I've become quite assertive about what I do and don't want to know and what demands I do and don't want made of me you know so if an interviewer says can I send you the questions in advance I'm like nope absolutely don't do that because if I read them 
they're going to be right at the front of my head until we talk and I'll be like mm. winding through them endlessly. So I, I work really hard to keep my head as clear as possible, but it's hard because I've got a head like a sponge. And now post-diagnosis, which I know it was so fascinating watching you tangle with that because mm. this desire in some ways to have a name for what you are. And yeah. then I know people don't say Asperger's, but I loved sort of that moment where you're like, I wanted like Asperger people with Asperger's are typically geniuses. So I was like excited <laughs> for that label. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I probably told the truth too, too out loud there, didn't I? Like, I want to be no, a genius. it was perfect. No, I think we all want to feel special and seen in who we are. And so I completely understand why this desire for (laughs) someone to explain your world back to you. Oh, yeah. Like to have an account of yourself. And I, I mean, the thing is that the accounts that were available to me then, and it's only like five years ago, about what autism even was, were so imperfect and problematic. And I had to kind of pick my way through what I could find then. And it has improved since then, but only because of the autistic community getting together and like working on this. But the research base hasn't really caught up with kind of what we are. And yeah, part of that is the obsession with genius and the way it's like used to mark out the good from the bad almost. And that's actually deeply, deeply problematic because when you look at how autism actually presents in people, It gives us what's called a spiky profile, which means that our abilities are unevenly distributed as compared to neurotypical people. So we tend to be like extra good at some things and extra bad. And like, you know, the word bad is not a great word to use, but but you know what I mean. Uh, Other things, whereas when you look at a neurotypical person, they tend to have like an ability level across a range of things that is basically similar. And that's where you get this idea of like genius and savantism. But we've been a bit too obsessed with that. And that's almost like a way of saying, well, some of these people are valid and some of them aren't. And in fact, I think, you know, I've had to think really hard about how I consider myself within this big mass of people who are all so different, but have these threads of of understanding in common. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed-release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. 
I think to the way that you described, we're going to go a little woo-woo here in a minute, which I know is not your jam, <laughs> but maybe more so now. It's not, it's not a big but, autistic jam altogether, actually. I think there's a kind of like autistic aversion to woo slightly. We, we want to like, prove so it. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but you write, and I think this might be where you got the title of the book. Yeah. My world is made up of tiny electric shocks. Every living thing carries its own current, and this finds its earth through me. Every unexpected touch, every glance has a charge. I am a lightning rod laid out like the red-nosed patient in the game of operation, eternally braced for the metal-on-metal jolt of conflict. And that intense sensitivity, that sponge-like capacity you have, like the the lack of a a filter, really. And I loved when you were talking about meditation near the end and how the one person, again, despite your aversion yeah, to yeah, Wu, yeah. who really seemed to understand you was a meditation instructor who was talking mm. to you about your aura and could see your aura and was like, it is huge. And could you, <laughs> he would like work with you where he would, he, he knew exactly where yeah. like the visible clench was for you physically. Like, yeah, at a he like, he point. deliberately crossed into my, like my massive personal space and let me feel that moment. And I, that was a really important moment to me because, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't understand it in terms of an aura. But I would also say that most people in everyday life aren't really paying attention to how other people's, how the space around other people feels. And I can sense it in other people. Like I can feel other people's boundaries really clearly. They're like really manifest to me. Whereas I I routinely get other people stepping into mine and I that's part of our kind of exquisite sensitivity in the world like we can feel the edges of people and they extend much further than our bodies it's really it's really evident so I mean you can make that as woo as you like actually because it I I don't think we're saying a very different thing in lots of ways I just think that my community like massively tuned into that stuff and I think everybody could and this guy had and he sensed the distance I needed and he showed it to me in a way that I couldn't have perceived at the time because I couldn't have been honest about it because it's I know that the region around me is way bigger than it is for other people like I you know it's and I was embarrassed by that as I was growing up. No but you clearly have extrasensorial perception and it's interesting in in this idea of proving it you know my view of the world is that and I know so many mediums, intuitives, people who perceive other extra information. And one of the women, this woman, Laura Day, who's an incredible medium, but she's like, she talks about how her, how she has brain damage and she has a traumatized brain and that that is why she's able to perceive this information. It's not necessarily. Right. Yeah. Like, she hasn't always had it basically. Yeah. 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 And that, but that she, you know, my, my perception is that, and I sense this in my oldest son, actually, is that we were these sort of energetic bodies, really, like mm. we're energetic beings in a physical form mm. that ideally is attenuated. Ideally, we're, we're designed to sort of process ourselves and express into the world. But we have varying abilities to do that. Like my son yeah. feels like this huge energetic being who can't, who's in an eight-year-old body and like cannot quite always process at it can't contain him yes he is he is struggles to be in his body in that way and so I I totally understand that feeling as well like I think that is I mean one of one of the things that lots of autistic people tell you is that they don't feel like they belong in their skin you know that they it barely contains them and it's an uncomfortable space to be in. Like I remember the first time I watched Men in Black and there's that guy that gets taken, the farmer that gets taken over by the alien. I don't know if you've seen it, but he's all like uncomfortable and it's all fitting wrong. And I just strongly related to it the moment I saw it. That's how it feels to be me, you know, and like everything is itchy and and like painful, like almost painful to the touch, like so many clothes I can't wear. Seats I can't sit in, noises I can't be around, smells like I will always be baffled by people wearing perfume. Like I I find that unbearable in my space. And it is, I mean, I, I often 
think that actually it's not that I have any extra senses. It's just that I'm not shutting any down, you know, and mm -hmm. there's so much that our bodies are perceiving that we don't pay any attention to and that we that we don't kind of acknowledge or process. And that is, you know, I, I'm sure that everyone's got the capacity to sense to that extent. And, and, and we see it, as you say, like people with brain injuries suddenly start sensing stuff they didn't notice before. What's that about? Is that because they've lost the ability to shut that input down? I, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. And we, we don't have anything like a fixed understanding because the research into autism has not been about sensory perception and it is the overriding experience of autistic people, but we haven't been listened to in the research. Yeah, no, it's so under, I think, you know, in so many ways, like you, for example, with wintering and entering, re-engaging re culture with this idea of like, we are cyclical beings, like we mm -hmm. are not, there's no, in no way are we supposed to be engaging with the world in the way that we are. Yeah. Sort of this canary in the coal mine, of, you know, you write about, I thought this was so beautiful too. You write, meanwhile, I would not have been so strange in a previous era, in a quieter world, a less hurried one without the whine of mobile phones and the ceaseless electronic drone of voices from the radio and the TV, without the noisy surges of hand dryers and the bleeping of train doors, without the flat plastic unknowable surfaces and the dry air containment of office life without pulsing lights and the ceaseless sense of personal availability. <laughs> but it also feels like you people like you are a warrant like the engine light flashing for all yeah. of us. Because I mean I I increasingly feel that modern life is becoming intolerable for everyone whether they're neurodivergent or not. I think we've noticed it earlier I think you know we've reached our point of unbearable discomfort earlier along the line but I I just begin to think that the way we're living is gen generally hostile to our brains and our, our like neurology we are all of us completely overwhelmed all the time and you know like the idea that some people had a good pandemic. Well, that's because the world called a truce on some of us and we didn't realise we needed it until that moment. I mean, I don't know what it's going to take for us to all pull the brake on this because it's not good. It's not good for us, mm -hmm. I don't think. It's profoundly unsustainable on, on mm. so many so levels. So many levels, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to talk about walking because obviously that's the backdrop yeah. to this book. You're yeah. sort of at first, I mean, I, I was very proud of you for allowing <laughs> a little bit of compromise for yourself in terms of what you set out to do, but you, you're walking, yeah. you're in rain and snow. And it seemed to me like an effort. I mean, obviously you're in mm. profound nature, but that you just, as much as you might find your body uncomfortable, that you were getting into your body in some ways yeah I yeah definitely I think I had to go through a kind of pain barrier almost to be able to really inhabit my body and yeah my body is a space that I have so often like exited because the world has been so uncomfortable for it to be in and I, I like I've lived in my head a lot and the process of walking the southwest coast path meant that I had to I had to inhabit my body like you, you know, impossible not to. And that it took me a good few walks before I started to actually enjoy it. I mean, it was really like I for the first few, I don't know why I did it looking back and I don't know why I carried on. It was vile. I got rained on a lot. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and I was really tired. <laughs> but there was something about it that I... I knew I was walking towards something in a in a way that was beyond my grasp, but I I just knew I had to do it. And yeah, I feel like I called a truce with my body and learned a better way to be in it. And part of that was definitely being outside more. And definitely the the rhythm of walking is is very, very soothing to me. 
Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com P-T-T. I also thought it was so beautiful and brave and vulnerable. And again, it goes to this idea of of no filter. There was this moment right before you launched into this discussion where your husband, who I thought was it was interesting that he also then took the test and and is borderline, but where he and Bert are driving you and it's going to take them, it's like four hours of driving to drop you off and you are using your weekends to do this walk. And I was like, that's so interesting because I would never, as a mom with so much dumb guilt, would never let myself do that. And then you sort of launched into that whole conversation, the ambivalence of parenthood, but also Mm. really hard conversations about like how being a mom playing with your, is not, your comfort spot no I mean I I found those early years of motherhood like incredibly boring most of the time and that's not to say that I didn't completely adore my son and like loved spending time with him and felt deeply attached to him and like loved the smell of him you know and whenever I was away from him felt bereft but also I I hated those blank hours at home where you were really doing like nothing together and I just yeah it it didn't occupy my brain enough it really didn't and I found it hard and I like desperately needed that time I get it's really funny actually because since then it's bothered me less like I feel like I needed to process the truth of what I was feeling and it made me want to be with him much more and I mean I'm certainly enjoying it more as he gets older like just as all the other parents are saying oh it's so sad they're not babies anymore I'm like this is great we're having some really good conversations now (laughs) (laughs) we get to do really good stuff together (laughs) but yeah I and I you know I originally before I realized I was autistic this was going to be a book about motherhood So there are the kind of vestiges of that still in there. But it's so vital that we start to talk about the different ways of being a mother, I think, and the whole spectrum of feelings and experiences that it entails and and that you're still doing an absolutely great job, incidentally, you know, like just 
despite your complete bafflement by it, I, it's time to crack that open. I agree. I, I, which is why I edited an anthology about it, incidentally, like a, the best, most awful job, which came out last year, was absolute, absolutely sprang from writing electricity and loads of people saying, yes, thank you for saying that, you know. Yeah. No, and it was really interesting just within myself to wrestle with, and it's part of the book that I'm writing too, but to wrestle with mm. almost the anxiety it provoked in me that your husband, who you call yeah. H in the book, yeah. was doing most of the heavy lifting and they would go to, you know, different, do different activities during the day while you were walking mm. and that you were sort of oblivious to it until this point where you were like, wait, this is, I can't do this to them anymore. And then he's like, actually, yeah. it's a lot easier. It's fine. We kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was really, that was a really hard moment. And I, I, I felt I did feel guilty about it before then and I knew that he was kind of carrying a lot but I also like I couldn't see another way around it in lots of ways it's so complicated isn't it I I felt like I couldn't just go away for weekends and I felt like I could, certainly couldn't go away and do like a long walk. I was talking to Cheryl Strayed about this and I was like, I dreamt of doing the walk that you did, you know, but it wasn't possible. I had to kind of chop, chop it up and everything was kind of compromised and compressed into weird amounts of time. We had to drive for a while. And then there was this moment when I realised that they were actually really happy together and that I always ruined it because I'd always get uncomfortable in the places that they loved being like you know noisy family attractions I make my skin crawl there's too many people it's always noisy it's always weird the food's weird everything's weird and I yeah that was painful to realize that I as the mother of the family was like getting in the way of them just being perfectly happy quite a lot of the time yeah tough moment no but I thought it was beautiful and honest and obviously does, I think, strike a chord for what we can indiv each individually tolerate, which is so hard always to hold that, right? Particularly as a parent, mm. your own comfort and preferences, and then the needs of everyone else in your life, and then social yeah. expectations about what this needs to look like. It is really hard to be a it's woman. really hard. I mean, let's face it, so much of motherhood is a performance as well, isn't it? That when you're out of the house, you're supposed to perform this kind of Mary Poppins motherhood where you're all like happy and lovely. And I was watching a mother today with her two children in a cafe and I thought, I recognise that act. You know, she was like <laughs> talking them through everything. And I thought, I bet, you know, when she gets home, her temper frays a bit more and she's just a bit more abrupt, you know. <laughs> but we, we're obliged to do that. We're being judged all the time and interfered with all the time. And there are so many different ways to express care and connection with your child. And, you know, like one of the things I write about in the book as well is that actually kind of Bert hated a lot of the stuff that I was supposed to perform as well. Like he didn't want to be carried around in a papoose and he kind of wanted me to leave him alone a lot more than I thought I ought to you know yeah there's so much that gets in the way isn't there of all the stuff we think we know when actually our intuition's always better yeah and each you know as it's like each child is such a strange entity mm. and a unique person my kids in some ways are similar but very different and they're tuned yeah very differently and I know you only have one child only but one, yeah. it's pretty wild to really mm. see the impact of yeah. personality and like how we are built and designed and, and temperament so this idea of temperament you know that yeah. we talk about in horses but I think I think humans have temperaments too really that yeah. sort of you know what's the what's the kind of pace that you work at what's the how quick are you to anger? Like all of those things, I think you you can't predict what your child's going to be like with that. And they're all so, so different. And when you look at Bert, I mean, you, you write, and I guess he was probably almost, I mean, not a toddler anymore, but very young when you wrote that book. But yeah, he's like three and four, yeah. Yeah, and I loved sort of the way that you wrote about him and wintering as well and how he needed to sort of come out of school and you needed mm. to show him that that that's okay mm. and that then you 
some things aren't right and then you can re-engage with the world in a different way. In the context of your own experience with the world and you I love too how you talk about like how he is not like his touch like he mm-hmm. is one of the few people who can permeate your your aura we're just gonna yeah, stick yeah. with aura he, he can step in he can step into my big space <laughs> yeah but does he how what is he like in comparison to you I mean you talk about him like in his trains and building and how mm. how alien it feels like how I mean it's so strange to be a parent I think it's and to so be like, strange. who are you? <laughs> well, because I think, I mean, I'm, I imagine this is true for everyone. And as you say, I've only got one child, but that like the the experience of being a parent is to have this being who, in so many ways, is just like you and responds in the same way and thinks in the same way. And then, in what what feels like a sudden lurch, is also incredibly different to you and doesn't perceive things in the same way you know and I that dance is so fascinating and and as he's getting older his attention's shifting onto different things and I'm finding different things that I've got in common with him and he's kind of reaching away from me other things it's like these it's like these waves I I find it absolutely fascinating and he has his his own way of moving through the world that is like so different to me but also I totally relate to some of it too and I I mean it's all a big meditation on difference really and how everybody is so unique and I I just think we don't talk about that enough in kids altogether we try and squeeze them into little little cookie cutters and I you know I think modern schooling does that more than it ever has for a long time actually I think we've gone back to those cookie cutters when we'd moved away from it in the like 60s and 70s and 80s when I was a kid it's really really hard to navigate that space for him so he can just be him without having to like change to fit I think yeah I worry about this stuff a lot as you can tell <laughs> this is like no the, I, but I think it's themes. so human It's this like, where do I fit? You know, you can think of it as the autism spectrum. You can think of it of our sort of collective fascination with the Enneagram or astrology or Myers-Briggs or any personality system, any way of understanding ourselves as part of something bigger and as part of an array of of, behaviors, right? Or Mm -hmm. like, who am I in the context of everyone else I think it's it's consuming for for yeah. all of us where do I stand how do I what's my place how do I rank and I, th- I think like that's also because everybody feels a bit like an outsider somewhere somehow and I, I think that experience of outsidership like however it derives and arrives is quite common among all of us actually that that sense that we're so conscious of our differences from the rest of the world. We we find it hard to notice our commonality. And totally. I, I think that's that leads to a lot of that seeking. Like what so what is it? Why why do I feel different to this room full of people? What the hell is that? You know, that's kind of Yeah. Or yeah. why do I feel incomplete? You know, or how do I you know, it goes mm. back to this even the idea of like duality, right? As we leave, mm, as we mm. entered this world and felt bereft somehow or separated or like the way that we seek our other half or our soulmate you know it's like as old as time or the written language how common addiction is you know and and how that is often about trying to fill a void that we don't understand even what that void is but we're trying to fill it in any way somehow yeah and those that warmth of belonging and that warm hug, which is ephemeral. Because as you say, I think even, you know, quote unquote, people who seem well adjusted or normal or, you know, they're everyone's an mm-hmm. imposter. We are going back to the beginning of our conversation, all performing, <laughs> performing being well adapted or quote unquote normal or all of these things. Like we all are mm-hmm. learning from each other what it is to belong. It's why culture is so contagious. It's why behavior is so contagious. It's this like pretty actually kind of overwhelming and wild to think about (laughs) yeah it is is. and I like I you know what always really interests me are the people that I understand the least who are the people who confronted with that 
like decide to enforce a culture, like decide like, right, we are clinging really hard to what we consider to be normal and we're going to, you know, these are the these are the bullies that everyone met at school, right? They're the mean girls and the, you know, the people that we see in our media decrying anyone who's trying to reach out and, you know, find an identity outside the mainstream. That's the, they're the people I understand the least, you know, mm-hmm. the people who drill their kids to be accountants, whatever. <laughs> That's, they're the ones that, that mystify me the most, I think. I feel great affinity with anyone who feels on the edge or the outside and who steps into that. That's always earns my admiration, I think, on some level. Yeah, it's like this part. I hope you don't mind that I'm continuing to read to you. Please do. It's quite nice to hear it from from you rather than me. It's really good. (laughs) Right. But for me, at my place in a very big spectrum, I think something else is going on. We've always been here, people like me, applying our detailed brains to problems that need precise solutions and noticing things that would lay outside of neurotypical fields of view. We're not an evolutionary accident, but an adaptation. We are not what you think we are. We are useful, valued, loved. We're the scientists and artists, the dreamers and the engineers. We're vital to all of it. We've been pushing it forward and holding it together while the extroverts take all the glory. That made me (laughs) weep when I read it. I almost just got teary-eyed. I thought it was so beautiful. And it is interesting. Like if you think about sort of the core of culture in in, in a, nothing against accountants, lawyers, et cetera. But you you think about that I'm as sort of the I'm grateful center. to my accountant this week. It's tax return <laughs> week in the UK. So, you know, big up to the accountants uh, of the world this week. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about the people who are pioneering, right, or the people who are on the edge of experience, who are more, maybe potentially more attenuated, less bound to see things as they have traditionally been seen. Like you guys are, you're in a way, a little bit of a prophet. Sorry, a woo-woo idea. Again. No, no, I, I think, I think the, the seers of history were probably autistic. You know, we're, these are people that perceive the world differently. And, you know, when you look at William Blake seeing angels in the trees at Peckham Rye, like I recognize that as an experience far more than I recognize normality as it's described to me all the time like I like in a way like we you know I was teasing you about being woo or whatever but a lot of what you're talking about just seems normal to me that's normal perception and I I also think I interviewed Michael Pollan last week for the On Being podcast and I because I really wanted to talk to him about psychedelics and like what that means in our world and like one of the things that I think about the rise in psychedelics is that actually autistic experience is pretty psychedelic in the first place. Like I really think that the stuff that other people are seeking about the kind of enhanced sensory perception and the kind of the weird edges of reality like are actually part of my everyday, like my sort of very luminous everyday. And we are a group who've been defined from the outside as like weird and annoying and like brittle and like uncomfortable to be with and undesirable. And nobody stopped to check like what we were perceiving that was, you know, on the inside all the time. And and that's, that's like where we've been. That's what, that's the world we've been inhabiting all along. Oh, that's such a beautiful idea. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper 
that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me thread to get your ChiliPad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. I'm dying to interview Michael Pollan. And I, of course, like everyone else in the world, read his book and am <laughs> keenly aware. I'm keenly interested in in psychedelics and psychedelic experiences, mm. even as so much as I find them often quite, I haven't done that many, but th- I'm so sensitive. <laughs> I was laughing, <laughs> laughing with someone last night that I was working on a particularly hard chapter in my book. And I was like, <laughs> someone had given me a bar of mushroom chocolate which is, I don't know how long it's been in there, Catherine, and that might have been part of the problem. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a tiny microdose and see if it helps me calm down about this chapter and deal with some of this, like, some of this traumatic processing that I seem to be having. And so I took, like, a tiny part of chocolate. And I, my husband came home. And I was in a hoodie with it pulled tight around my face under a blanket, listening to music, crying. He was like, what's <laughs> happening? And I was like, I need you to pick up the kids from school. I took <laughs> chocolate. And he was like, what? Like, you're not supposed to be inside. You're not supposed to do that on a Tuesday. Like, what are you doing? What were you thinking? Oh, my, oh my God. God. I love this. <laughs> <It was. laughs> That's so funny. It was Actually, a really hard day. I, uh, of course, I was like, I'm gonna write three thousand words today. Instead, I was a fucking mess. I just, I love that you said that, and I like, I. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm just laughing so hard now. But um, like all these, I mean, it, but that's isn't that supposed to really be what happens? Like rather than all these people that are like, oh, I took some and I was hyper efficient for the day. Like, oh, screw that. <laughs> Take some and cry on your sofa. Like that's awesome. I think that's just exactly how it should feel. That's that's what it should do for you. Like it's a great big releasing of the floodgates. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh my God, it was so... <laughs> oh, it was very extra. But no, I... Beautiful. I... It's a beautiful moment, honestly. <laughs> But it was a reminder to me, you know, like so much of what was coming up was like, oh, wow, I just let this stay in my body and I am not processing any of my feelings out of that guise of efficiency. And like the minute I let them come up, it was like being swamped. Yeah, it's like the being on on that trail in the rain and the mud, like clamoring. It was like it is coming down on you like with the fury. It's, I mean, it's all good in the end. It's not that productive on a day you're trying to write a chapter, sure. <laughs> I'm very but productive, ultimately, so it's good for me. Yeah. Yeah. Put, yeah. Pushed into a cul-de-sac sometimes. Maybe you needed that disrupting. Maybe that, I mean, it gives you what you need, doesn't it? That's what those, <laughs> those substances do. They give you what you need at that time and you needed to be disrupted rather than to work any harder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Catherine, as one of our modern day wise women prophets what do you see for us like what do you I know that's a hard Mm. question but what what's your instinct yeah I mean I'm I am a basically hopeful person I think I think it's really interesting that lots of people are discovering their neurodivergence at the moment and I think it's much bigger than we ever realized I think the spectrum contains a lot of different people and and the in this is all about perceiving the world differently like this is not about yeah like i don't know it's it's not about the kind of 
some kind of technical class arising, which I think is how we've often thought about neurodivergent people that we talked about that as us as logical or kind of, you know, able to to calculate in a very cold way. This is about a flood tide of creative people emerging and understanding their creativity because that's always been a huge part of neurodivergence. And the fact that we're like uh, we're learning about ourselves at this moment in time when incidentally like it's probably quite a dangerous moment in time to learn about ourselves because there are plenty of forces in politics that are pushing back against disability and mm. and other ability like some people consider themselves to be disabled if they're autistic some people consider it to be a different kind of ability like there's there's room for everybody it's really interesting that we're emerging despite those pressures to the contrary and despite the kind of huge economic pressures that are cut here and and coming in you know in even greater mass because this is where I you know begin to see us as like an adaptation like we are we are here because we're needed because we're like great randomizers we're great intuits we are great perceivers of patterns that other people don't recognize we are full of almost agonizing levels of compassion mm. and sensitivity and just general huge lantern consciousness <laughs> and i like we we are we're massing at the borders we're here because we're absolutely needed and we need to be listened to because actually we're picking up on the way that the world is like going in the wrong direction and we can show you all the way back home. I don't want to make that sound too grand, but I like I really do believe that that people like me are so needed in this world. And like one of the big things about us is that we don't really care about going along with what everybody else says. That's one of the things that makes us so awkward is that if someone says something I disagree with, I don't want to do, I can't help but go, oh, no, no, that's wrong. Or, you know, like, no, I'm not doing that. That's my apparently my catchphrase, like, no, I don't want to do that. Which, you know, like neurotypical people find really hard to say, like, because they're much more bounded by social convention quite often. The world needs people right now saying, no, I'm not doing that. Like, no, I've reached my limit. I can't do that. I won't do that. Don't agree with that. And I, yeah, it's really time for for the the odd awkward people of this world to to step up now I think oh that's so beautiful I even I hate to like not end on that note but I have one more (laughs) follow-up question to that mic drop what would that look like if sort of within the autistic community what do you want to see I think that this is where the true diversity comes in and and also like the intersectionality it's so important to talk about intersectionality within neurodivergence because actually you know like the the image we have are like white boys you know that's they're the only kind of neurodivergent people we so often see and there is so many different emerging experiences of being neurodivergent and like looking at indigenous communities it's absolutely fascinating to see how we're perceived in different social structures you know so like in the Maori, autism is, I'm about to mispronounce it badly, but it's called takitawanga, which means uh, in your own time and space. Like it's honoured as a different perceptional state. I was reading today about Indigenous people in Canada, and I forgive me, I forget the, the name of the people, but how autism is absolutely not seen as a deficit in their community and seen as, again, like a, a diff- like a clear difference and a, a valuable difference. And I, like... The more I've got to know other autistic people, the more I've realised how relaxed we are with difference, like genuine difference and genuine diversity. And I and that's a model for how we need to continue as a whole. Like we're never all going to be the same. We're never going to feel the same about everything. We're never going to need the same things. And it's possible to be really compassionate and tolerant within that massive diversity. I just believe that it is a sort of falsehood that we have to find one way of doing things and that we just have to find the right way and like impose it on the stragglers like that's that's not how this is going to work going forward yeah and yeah 
Sorry. <laughs> no, no. But just just that equity somehow is synonymous with being homogenous and that mm. people think they conflate equality with being the same. And no, actually, yeah. it's all of our differences that make life really, really interesting. And yeah. we're not all this, supposed to be doing the same thing here or serving the same function. Yeah, exactly. And 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 like equal respect, that's the that's the thing that drives this. And like if you get a community of autistic people together, what I find really fascinating is that everybody in that room will have like quite definite different needs. Like so for some people, you know, like light will be too much light will be a problem and for others they'll crave loads of light. And you'd think that would lead to conflict, but it doesn't tend to. It tends to lead to negotiation and people mm -hmm. respectfully finding their way to do it and, and, you know, trying to facilitate what other people need. And like, I don't want to pretend we're a utopia or anything like that, but I do think that we could do with a lot more of that in mainstream life. You know, it's it's often seen as so difficult to make accommodations for people. And I see my community make accommodations in like the most natural compassionate simple mm. generous way and I don't understand why that's supposed to be so hard well it's interesting too that <laughs> and you were sort of speaking to that at, at various points this idea of being crystal clear about not only your limitations but your needs so I think so often we don't maybe don't know our needs or we don't know how to articulate them but once you once those are established then it becomes something that can be it's, met yeah. or you can but this idea that we just don't even we don't even yeah. have that conversation and that like you know I and every other autistic person every now and then gets this like receives this flare of anger from someone online because they're like well my needs aren't being met so met so why should yours be almost like they don't say that out loud but that's kind of what they mean like well I struggle with this stuff too so you know how how dare you make a demand and they're right you know like in a world that doesn't let them meet their needs I can see why they would feel so resentfully about people like me stepping forward and maybe having more rights under kind of disability legislation to demand those needs although honestly it's not that straightforward but we need everyone to be able to meet their needs like that's the truth of it that you know Nobody should have to feel that life is a massive struggle every day and nobody should have to feel that their basic needs are unmet. And that's, yeah, that absolutely goes for everybody. Oh, Catherine May, if you haven't read Wintering, I loved that book. I'm sure it rippled through your awareness if you haven't read it. It's such a beautiful love story to those moments of time when we need to retreat, go inside, be quiet. And then, you know, I know Catherine mentioned that she doesn't think the electricity of every living thing is necessarily for all people, but I assure you it is. And not only to give sort of this incredibly beautiful heightened awareness of what it is to be her on the autism spectrum and the way that she perceives the world but I do think that it has lessons for all of us and going back to that scene that she writes about where she is with the man who taught her to meditate and talk to her about her aura I just wanted to read a little bit from that section quickly because it's so beautiful it's an uncomfortable truth for a materialist like me, but through this man's eyes, I found the kindest account of myself I have ever been offered. Not prickly or awkward or difficult, not overly sensitive or afraid of intimacy. Instead, queenly. Instead, having a sense of personal space that required respect. It's funny, isn't it, to flip that on its head? Imagine if the responsibility didn't fall to people like me, people with AS, women, to modify our reactions to the intrusions of other people. Imagine if, instead, it was considered a basic politeness to observe other people's responses to our social overtures and adjust accordingly. Imagine if we accepted that there are a whole range of personalities out there and that one size does not fit all. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. 
You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.